0: Let's pray together. God, it is overwhelming to contemplate that at this moment, This day, about this time of day, two thousand years ago, the decisive blow, the treading foot, the crushing defeat of Satan was delivered. And you set the captive free. And you opened the eyes of the blind. And you gave life to the dead. That they might never die again. Because our Savior. Oh, what a Savior we have in Jesus Christ. And there is no name given under heaven whereby men might be saved but by your name, Lord Jesus. And so we bow the knee now before your holy an awesome throne. And we reflect now on the cross and we think of its finished work and we look into the future at the day of the full, unfettered glory which will break the eastern sky when you come. Not, as Hebrews says, to make a payment for sin. Oh, no, you've made that payment, Lord. Now you're coming to save all those who are waiting for you. And, Lord, we're waiting. We're waiting because You have gifted us from above with faith that we might believe in You. No eye has seen nor you heard all of the things that You have done and are doing. But the things we know of, God, they are more than we can comprehend. Now settle us into Your Word. This is a complicated... Yet, simple principle. Help us to grasp it now. Holy Spirit, reveal your truth to us. Call the dead to life. Call the saved to new, renewed passion. We pray it all in your name. Amen. As we. Uh, you take your Bible and turn to Hebrews 9. Specifically, will be looking at... Um, I'll be using a manuscript more than normal. Don't let that bother you. As I was saying in the prayer, um, this is a very complicated issue we deal with tonight. It is simple, but it's complicated. It, it, is, it is mysterious, and yet... It has now been revealed to us on whom the end of the ages has come. But that, no, that does not remove for us sometimes the struggle. I'm reminded of uh, the words Isaac Watts penned in 1709 based on the Hebrews 10.4. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Listen to the first verse. We'll look at the rest of the verses as after or near the end of our sermon. But listen to the words of this first verse. Not all the blood of beasts on Jewish altars slain could give the guilty conscience peace or wash away the stain. That was the dilemma. Nobody in their right mind thought killing bulls and goats saved anybody. That was the dilemma of the old covenant. They knew it wasn't enough. You can't kill a goat. You can't kill a bull. And think that replaces or covers or removes your sin. And they felt that in their deepest Recesses of their heart, they felt the angst of, this isn't enough. It's all God's given us at this point, and what it caused them to do was yearly, at least if not every day, to cry out to God, send the Savior, send the Messiah. All the death of the bulls that year after year after year at the Day of Atonement. All it did for the Jewish people was cause those who believed in God to say, He's not done yet. Our salvation's not secure. We need a Savior. That's all it did. And we come to Hebrews, and the writer of the Hebrews, throw your mind for a loop, the book of Hebrews, I believe, is a sermon. It was preached in one setting. In the original Greek, read At a normal pace and cadence, it's 45 minutes long, beginning to end. You think I preach complicated sermons. Try that one on. Read the book of Hebrews sometimes. This is a preached sermon. And he's arguing. He's presenting an apologetic. He's talking to Christian people. And what he's arguing for don't go back to the Old Covenant. Don't go back to bulls and goats. Don't join the Essene community and their higher life ways. Oh, Jesus died for us, but we gotta, we got to keep being faithful to the law and killing these animals. Don't go back. That was his point. Don't go back. If you go back, He says in Hebrews 6, you who have tasted of heavenly things, if you go back, there is no sacrifice for your sins. And I say the same to you, congregation. If you, knowing what you know, having God revealed to you what you have had revealed to you, if you go to any other place to find salvation, there's no hope. There's no hope. Because what's been revealed in your heart is you weren't saved. You were never His. Because once you've come to Him, you can't go back. Once you've tasted of the heavenly things and ingested them into your very being, they settle on the heart like sweet drippings from the honeycomb. Christ becomes all in all. And bulls and goats won't do it because they won't relieve the guilty conscience. They won't set the sinner free. And they never were intended to do that. They never were intended to do that. The bloody rituals of the covenant in the Old Testament. Testament just means covenant. That's all it means. The bloody the bloody performance of the priests in the Old Covenant was a drama. You say, well, I, I don't like that. You mean God killed all those animals? So that He could just paint a picture? Yes. Yes, that's how serious he is that you understand what your sin costs. Every Jewish family, every year, about this time of year, in the month of Nisan, carried from their own flock a lamb. We know from history that they had let these lambs who they had chosen at birth because they were not marked, they were not defiled, they met all of the requirements of the law to be sacrificed. They let these lambs to protect them live in their houses often. Play with their children. Their children play with them. Sleep at the foot of their beds. Feed them from, you know, on the corner and everybody at the family ate in the Can't you just see the little lamb running in to eat his part? And everybody eating like a family. And then about this time of year, by the command of God, that whole family would have taken that lamb they love so much and taken him to Jerusalem. And they would have herded him into the other flock. And they would have went in and been slaughtered. And that—that is nothing in comparison to what happened on Holy Friday. Nothing compares to it. It's incomparable. But this is a small drama, and it's painting to us a picture. It was painting to them a picture, and so we look at Hebrews chapter nine, and we're in the center of this um, message, the sermon. And he's talking to them in Hebrews 8 verse 7, for instance. Look at Hebrews 8 verse 7, just for context. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second covenant. Okay? So he's saying, in essence, the old covenant was one thing, and now we have the new covenant, which is a better thing. It's better. Than the Old Covenant. And he he talks about that in several places. In verse 13 of chapter 8 he says. In speaking of a new covenant. He makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. If you know anything about the timing of the writing of the book of Hebrews. See, this is after the cross. You might say, well, what's he talking about? It's ready to vanish. I thought Christ fulfilled it and and brought it to an end. Yes, but the writing of Hebrews is a tricky thing, but it probably was in about A.D. 63 or 64. And the writer sees what's coming. The preacher sees what's coming. What's coming is the full and absolute destruction of the temple at Jerusalem. What's already obsolete is about to vanish. He already knew it. Jesus had promised it. in all of it discourse. Judgment's going to come on this city. When you see them circling the city, you better get out. Don't go back and look for anything to take with you. Get out now. Go to the desert. Flee. And it happened in AD 70. Rome's army. Surrounded and encircled Jerusalem and starved them to the point that they ate their children to find enough food to survive. Mothers eating their children. You women understand, it must have been horrible. And then the Roman army, because they would not bend the knee and would not bow to the army, they were led in. And Titus's men ransacked the temple. They did not just take it down. As Jesus said, there was not one stone left on another. Why? Because when they were rebuilding Solomon's temple, they had worked on it for almost 50 years, about 47 years. And they had overlaid and in the cracks of the stone, they had put gold. And his army, Titus' army, melted it. They were trying to get the gold out. In the process of getting the gold out, it got so hot it ran like liquid. And the stones began to fall. And the whole temple collapsed. The actual temple proper collapsed. All that's left today is a wall, a western facing wall. And the temple mount. But for the stones, they weren't left one on another. Just as Christ had said. And so the writer of Hebrews is saying that covenant which God had with the people of Israel in the old was obsolete and it's going to vanish. And it did, it vanished, it's gone. All that's left are the shadows. All that are left now is for us to look back into God's testament of the old covenant and see it in the rearview mirror. We are in a new covenant in Jeremiah 31. The only place God mentions by name the New Covenant. Though in Ezekiel and Isaiah it's very clear he's talking about this same covenant. But the word New Covenant comes from Jeremiah 31. The the preacher is going to quote that in Hebrews 10 verse 16. This is the covenant which I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them Write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. That's the covenant you and I enjoy today through the blood of Christ. That's why we're here tonight celebrating this day. Remembering this day. Because something magnificent took place on the cross. Something holy took place on the cross. God kept His Word on the cross. He kept His Word. Well, what was His Word? If we look back in Hebrews 9 here, just up the paragraph in 11, Hebrews 9 verse 11, if we start there, what we see in 11 through 14 is a summary of His argument about the Old Covenant being obsolete. Look at what it says. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, notice He doesn't say they're coming. He says the good things have come. They're here. Then, through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. Christ entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of His own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. He previously says... There was an earth... In Hebrews 9, there was an earthly tabernacle. There was an earthly tent. And it is a parabola. A parable. A copy of the real tabernacle that is in heaven. The true tabernacle which is in heaven. And Jesus came from that Holy of Holies and tabernacled with His people. So now we see... That what the shadow of the tent of meeting and the tent of tabernacle in the Old Testament was, was just a picture. It was just a drama. It was just a, it was just for them to look and say, we need a Savior. We need a mediator. We need a place to meet with God. That's what the tent was. God's presence came into it and Moses and Joshua met there with him. And they mediated to the people the words of God. That's, that's what happened. And so that tabernacle was not the real tabernacle. That's what the writer of Hebrews is saying. That tabernacle was a copy. That tabernacle was a parable. That tabernacle was a shadow. It was just a picture. So you could look at it and say, we need a real tabernacle. And then God sent Jesus, His Son, who John 1.14 says tabernacled with us. And the Word took on flesh and dwelt among us. That, dwelt among us, it means pitched His tent. It means He tabernacled with us. So Jesus came from the tabernacle in heaven and He was the tabernacle on the earth that replaced the old tabernacle which was just a picture. It was just a copy. That's obsolete. This is not a tabernacle. When I read church names that says tabernacle this or tabernacle that, I think, then you missed it. This is not a tabernacle. We don't have a tabernacle. Look what he says then. He entered once and for all into the holy places. Holy of holies. There's a holy of holies on the earth, in the tabernacle, in the temple. But the real tabernacle is in heaven and the real holy of holies is in heaven. It's, it's, it's This thing is a model in the Old Covenant and now we don't need the model because we're looking at the real fulfillment of the model. When you read the Old Testament, if you don't read it that way, you'll miss the whole point. You'll miss it. You'll miss it. That's like, that would be like, it's equivalent to being at the Empire State Building. It's right there in front of you. And some artist has and architect have come together to put a replica together that's about a foot high. It's to scale, but it's a foot high. And the Empire State Building shooting up all its glory and wonder. And you're going, oh, this is magnificent. What are you doing? I'm looking at the Empire State Building. No, it's right there. No, I I, I like this one. It's more my size. I'm comfortable with this one. I like this one. That's what the people that this preacher was talking to were doing. They were saying, I'm comfortable with those old things. No, 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 don't talk about Christ to me. I, I believed in him, but now I want what was comfortable to me. I like that back there. This model is good. Who did this? Who cares? The, look at that building. I don't care about that building. That one scares me. It's too big. I like this one. This is my size. And before we scoff and laugh too much, we do it all the time. The cross purchased you and now has sent you to do what he has commanded you to do, and yet. And He has empowers you to do what He commands. And yet, you want to look at the model of your life and say, Oh, that's magnificent. That's beautiful. No! Look right there. No, I don't want to look at that stuff. I'm looking right here. And we're guilty of it. We're just like them, aren't we? Can't you identify with their nerves? I mean, we get to antsy about changing history that's a 100 years old. Or 200 years old. Imagine if it was 3,000 years old. And now... Some, someone comes along and says, all that stuff was good, but we got something better. Notice in Hebrews, he says, better than the angels. Jesus Christ. The whole purpose of Hebrews is to say Christ is better. Christ is better. Back in Hebrews chapter one. He's better than the angels. Move. He's better than Moses. Move. He's better than the priesthood move he's better than even melchizedek move he's better than the tabernacle move he's better than the he's better than the holy of holies he's better he's better he's better he's screaming it to us i mean he, he's if he had a microphone if he had a megaphone he'd be hollering at his audience stop looking at the old you've got the new that's what the cross did for us folks It transitioned us from the old to the new. It's a much more glorious thing that we get to look at. So let's look at this in verses 11 through 14. We're in verse 12 there. We're moving forward. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh... How much more will the blood of Christ... He's better than the tabernacle. He's better than the earthly holy of holies. He's better than the sacrifices of bulls and goats. He's better than that. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God, don't go back to the works of the old covenant, Rest in the work of Christ. That's what he's saying in verses 13 and 14. That's the summary. That's the summary. Verse 15 is the thesis statement of chapter 9. Therefore, based on what I've just told you, therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant. Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah 31, verse 33. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who who were called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Or it could be read as will and testament. But that's really a controversy here. I want to avoid it. So we don't get bogged down. but I don't believe we should read it as the will and testament. Rather we should read it as the covenant. The same word means covenant and will and testament. And all of these should be translated covenant, 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 covenant. Jesus fulfills the covenant. The thesis statement is that the new covenant has come. We live in the new covenant. We live in the new covenant. We We don't much think that's a big deal. I mean, I, I'm not trying to put words in your mouth, but we really don't think it's much of a big deal. But it is oh so precious. Christ, he's saying in verse 15, Christ, point one, if it, Christ's effective atoning death manifests him as the mediator. He is the mediator. Now, Uh, Hopefully that will become more glorious as we go. Let's look at it again. Let's read it again. For this reason, He is the mediator of a new covenant, so that since the death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed unto, under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. Now, the argument is for this reason. He is the mediator of the new covenant. This is what the whole chapter is about. For what reason? How can He be the mediator of a new covenant? That reason is summarized in the words, since a death has taken place for the redemption of the iniquities under the first covenant. So He fulfilled the first covenant. He died for the sins going backwards into the old covenant. How were people in the Old Testament saved? Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever thought? how was Noah saved? How how is Moses saved? How are the people in the time of Joshua and David, how are they saved? Answer, by Christ alone. Just like you and I. Not by the blood of bulls and goats, but by Christ alone. So the cross casts back into the old covenant and fulfills all those things. All the sacrifices. And so we see that if you, if as we were looking at 11 through 14, hopefully you caught that. And we see that the old covenant has been wrapped up now, completed in Christ. And so we move forward and we say, now, rem, we're trying to remember here that when Jesus was explaining to his disciples, when Jesus was talking about his death to his disciples, so we can see how precious this work on the cross is. When he was explaining it, Matthew and Mark record for us the words of Exodus chapter 24. The words of Exodus chapter 24 are, this is the blood of the covenant. Now when Matthew and Mark write that, they write it just a dead quote from Exodus 24. This is the blood of my covenant, of the covenant. And we know from Luke and Paul That He not only said that, but He also said the exact words of Jeremiah 31. This is the new covenant in my blood. We read that last night. This is the new covenant in my blood. So Christ, some would argue, didn't start the new covenant. The new covenant is something the Jews inherit in the future. But that's not what Jesus said. What Jesus said is, what I'm doing at the cross... Fulfils the old and starts the new. And it's for the church. The new covenant. People are the church. Worldwide. Every ethnic group. Every language has representatives in this great covenant. So Jesus takes the disciples right where the author of the Hebrews takes them. By saying. If. If. You want to understand how Jesus died and why He died. You need to understand that His death is the thing that brings the promises of God to completion. It was prophesied hundreds and hundreds of years ago by Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Isaiah. And now God has kept His promise to you. So why do you want to revert back to your old ways? Or in your case, why are you waiting for Him to do something else before you believe Him? He can't do more than he has done. He can't do more than he has done. Leon Morris says it like this. The death that inaugurates the new covenant. Jesus' death which brings about this new covenant is seen as providing the way of forgiveness. Even for those transgressions committed under the first covenant. The obvious inference is that such sins could not really be forgiven under the first covenant. And that therefore the new covenant was an absolute necessity. If Jesus doesn't come and die on the cross, everyone who was practicing the sacrifices of the Old Testament goes to hell. Because their their sacrifices did not save them. They were only pointing them to a Savior that was coming, a Messiah that was coming. That God would keep His Word. So if Jesus doesn't die on the cross, they all go to hell. And guess what? Everyone on this side of the cross goes to hell too. He is the mediator of the new covenant. He is the only mediator. He, what does mediator mean? Well, mediator means that we have two parties and there has been an offense committed. And someone's got to go between the two parties. The offense is so great, the offense is so deep, the offense is so irreparable that the two parties cannot agree on a settlement. Who are the two parties that Jesus is mediating between? On the one hand, God. God the Father. Holy. Righteous. Sinless. Perfect. Sovereign. All-powerful. Omniscient omnipresent, ever-existing. This is the one side of the parties. And the other? Man. Sinful from birth. Exceedingly wicked. Mind filled with sin. Heart in rebellion. Never able to even sustain his own health. Dying every day. The gap is so great, there is no way to bridge it. It seems. And the old covenant did not remove that fear and that trembling and that struggle. I'm taking this lamb. I believe in God. Oh God, save me. Don't, don't, don't. Don't turn back on your word. Send the Messiah. Send him quick. I need him. I'm not enough. This lamb is not enough. That bull up there is not enough. The work of the priest is not enough. That tabernacle is not enough. That temple is not enough. None of this is enough. Help us. That's, that's, that's the heart of a believer in the old covenant. Send the Messiah. Send the Messiah. And so, Moses even witnessed to the fact that there would have to be a new covenant. That's what it means when we talk about a mediator. And when the writer of Hebrews says he is a mediator of a new covenant, that's, that's, that's the depth of it. They were in absolute despair and they needed a Savior. And they, in faith, hold on to faith, worshiped the living God and said, if there is no help from you, this lamb is not enough. Help me. Now you have to realize that that may not be shocking to you, but if you came from a Jewish background, that that is shocking. If you take Christ away, if you tell them, you take Christ away, it's absolutely meaningless, that shocks some, because they would have said proudly, "We obey God, we're the sons of God. We follow God. God is our Father. That's how they talk to Jesus. It's mind boggling to them to to, to hear the writer, the preacher say these things. It's tough. Throughout, you notice that the passage assumes that the covenant we're talking about has already been violated. Look at the passage, it assumes violation, just like Exodus 24 assumed violation. The law wasn't given in any expectation by God that men would keep it. He commanded that we keep it, but he often he also immediately said, Now, when you break the covenant, this is what you are to do. God didn't give the law and he's there and wring his hand and say Oh, boy, I hope they do a good job, man. If they can just keep it. If just one of them can keep it, I can save them. Oh, please keep the laws. Please keep the laws. These laws are good laws. These tell you about who I am. Please obey. No, God didn't do that. Don't make God into an eternal wimp. God gave the law and said, this is who I am. I am holy. I'm not like you. You have no other like me. Don't even make a graven image to you try to represent me. Do not worship the gods that surround you. Do not commit adultery because you're breaking the covenant. Do not murder because that's my life you're taking. Do not covet because I didn't give you what I gave your neighbor. And immediately, he says, when you break all those covenants, this is what you're to do. The covenant, the old covenant, is based on This may be revolutionary. I don't know. Maybe you're just thinking, man, this is all old news. The old covenant is based on what the new covenant is based on. The blood of Christ and the covenant of grace. God didn't ever plan to save anybody by the old covenant. He only planned to paint a picture in redemptive history that pointed to His Son so all would believe in Him. It was the covenant of grace that he was pointing them to, based on the blood of Christ. Beginning to end, folks, this book is about Christ, and the cross is the central point of all of history. And so we see it. What's so significant about this, though? There are several things I want to point out. First, first is the fact that this is a Jewish author. And he's telling them that if you go back to the Old Testament, you will die in your sins. You take Christ away, all that stuff means nothing. Okay, I've covered that one. The second thing that I want to say about that is that Christ assumed the penalty of the covenant. Look what it says here in verse 16. For where a will is involved, the death of one who made it must be established I would argue and not not alone most modern scholars conservative scholars would agree that it should read and it is better to read it for where a covenant is involved the death of the one who made it must be must be established the death's of the one who established it for a will take for a covenant takes effect only at the deaths, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive, therefore not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book of the law, and all the people saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. Jesus identifies with those words from Exodus 24 in the upper room with the disciples saying, I'm fulfilling that. And in the same way, He sprinkled with the blood both the tent, the tabernacle, and all the vessels used in it for worship. Indeed, under the law, everything is purified. Most everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, There is no forgiveness of sins. The second most important thing I want you to see here is that without death you cannot be saved from your sins. So we have the Old Covenant and there was all these deaths. It was a bloody covenant. It was a bloody covenant. God did it for centuries. Painted this picture. But the writer... If you look at your passage, where they're they're in verses 16 and 17, they're they're using the word probably in your NIV or New King James or um, King James or RSV. You're reading will and testament or testator, right? I'm saying that's covenant based on the fact that it's strange language usage to go from talking about the covenant to talking about the will and the covenant and then talking about the covenant again. It doesn't make any sense. And based on the fact that I think he's speaking here about the promise. Look what it says. When he died, he secured for you the promised inheritance. Did you see that? Now, he promised Moses land and an inheritance. He promised it. But that wasn't the beginning of that promise, was it? No. That was a repeat of the promise of Genesis 15. Look with me. Hold your place in Hebrews and go to Genesis 15. You want to see the cross in the Old Testament? You want to see what God did in the Old Testament to show us a need for the blood that would remove sin? It's one of the most grotesque scenes. One of, not the most, one of the most in the Old Testament. came to him. Eleazar of Damascus shall not be your heir. Your very own son, the one who comes from your loins, that's literally what it says, shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. He said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord. And the Lord counted it to him as righteousness. The belief was not righteousness, but God counted his belief as righteousness. Because we are saved by faith alone. In Christ alone. So was Abram. And he said to him, I am the Lord... Who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. There it is. The promised inheritance. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, bring me a heifer. Three years old, a female goat. Three years old, a ram. Three years old, a turtle dove and a young pigeon. And Abram brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid them each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. And as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell on him. And then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain, know for certain that your offspring. Notice closely. Read closely. It does not say your offsprings. Plural. It says your offspring, the one who shall come from your loins. Your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. He did that. He did it. When Joseph, the offspring of Abram, was carried into Egypt. And then, likewise, all the children of Israel. But Joseph went first. And afterward they shall come out with great possessions. He did it. He brought them out of Egypt. As for yourself, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation. For the iniquity of the Ammonites is not yet complete. And when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land. To your offspring. I'll tell you why I keep saying that over and over again. It's so important you read closely. From the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cabmanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Raphim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites, and all the other ites. I'm going to give you their land. No. I'm going to give your offspring their land. Paul interprets it for us. Paul tells us exactly what the word of God means. Galatians chapter 3. We have no reason to guess because God has answered. Galatians chapter 3. The Galatians have the same problem the people of the Hebrews have. They want to go back to the Israelite way. They've been taken up with the Judaizing cult. Galatians 3, verse 7. After telling them, You were saved by faith in Christ, just as your father Abram was saved, look what he says. Knowing then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham and the Scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed, Genesis chapter 12. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it's evident that no one is justified before God by the law For the righteous shall live by faith, but the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ, listen, you want to know what He did? Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. So that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. You can't add to it, you can't add to it, and you can't take away from it. It's already been ratified. When was it ratified? Genesis chapter 15. Genesis chapter 15. Not in Exodus, not in Deuteronomy, not Any other later date. It was ratified. It was made holy in Genesis 15. There was no nation. There was only Abram. And there was only God. And the covenant was to his offspring. Keep reading. The promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings. Referring to many. But referring to one and to your offspring, who is Christ. In Genesis 15, God's making a promise to Abram about Christ. Not about a nation. Not about a group of people. About Christ. Read closely when you read your Scripture. This is what I mean, the law. The law which came, by the way, at Sinai when the nation of Israel came into existence. The law which came 430 years later does not annul a covenant ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance, there's our word in Hebrews. If the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. The promised inheritance came from Genesis 15 to us in Christ Not through the law, but through Christ's finished work. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of your sin. Until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary, Moses. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promise of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed come by the law. But the Scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise of faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe, you and me. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming of faith which would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith and we have the law is obsolete. It's vanished. Why? Because Christ has come. The promised offspring. What am I saying? Why am I, why, why am I so excited? Because what Christ did on the cross is fulfill every promise of God from the old covenant. And He delivered them to His people both Jew and Gentile, who have faith in Him. And so my lineage does not date back to the Pounders family in England and stop. It by faith, my lineage, my spiritual lineage, goes all the way back to my father, Abram. And God acted out the cross in Genesis 15. You say, how? I don't see a wood stick there. I don't see anybody impaled on a piece of wood. No, you didn't. You saw animals cut in half. Blood and gore everywhere. And then separated. And you saw Abram sitting by a tree in a stupor. Did Abram pass through with the halves sitting on either side? Did God say, Abram, I'm making a covenant and you got to keep it? No. God said, I'm making a covenant with you this day, Abram, and I will give it to your offspring, Paul says, which is Christ. And who will be the payer? Who will pay the debt? God said, I will pay the debt. That's the cross in Genesis 15. I will pay the debt. Because, see, when you cut the animals in half and put them on either side and walk between them, what you're saying is, if I break my word to you this day, Thus be done to me what was done to these animals. Let them be cut and accursed. But God didn't break His Word, see? God kept His Word. You broke His Word. I broke His Word. All sinners, all men from all time broke His Word. And so what does God do? Kill us? No, He kills Himself. You want to know why the cross is glorious? Because God took your punishment and my punishment and bore it on a tree because the blood of bulls and goats could not take away the guilty conscience. Only the death of a Savior could do that. And Christ is the Savior. And so He has vouchsafed to us the promises of His Word. He is the yes and amen of God's promises. When you read Genesis 15 from now on, And you see divided animals in a pot and a flame passing through them. See the cross. Abram got up from the ground and broke the covenant. He broke the covenant. His children broke the covenant. And God said, you broke the covenant. You're guilty. And I will cover your sin. I will remove it. And that's where our text ends. In Hebrews 9. And so it was necessary, verse 23, for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with the rites, but in the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into a holy place. He has entered not into a holy place made with hands. He went into the holy of holies. He didn't go into the copy of the true things. He went into heaven itself. And He appeared in the presence of God on our behalf. He fulfilled Genesis 15, was raised from the dead and went to heaven and appeared before God with His own blood for us. That's what He did on the cross. Nor was it to offer Himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy place every year with blood not His own. For then He would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is written, He has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of Himself and just as it is appointed for man to die once that was what was appointed for us that we die once and after this comes the judgment so Christ having been offered once to bear the sins of the many Christ was offered to bear our sin on the cross that's what the cross means that that that's the depth of just the smidgen of the depth of the cross he bore our sin on the tree. Preach, preach some hope. There's no better hope. But there is a conclusion. We haven't gotten to the conclusion. We haven't seen it with our eyes. Look what it says. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. Not to deal with sin, but to save those who Who are eagerly waiting for him? He's been here, and in his first coming, he kept the covenant in his own blood. This is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. And then he's coming again, not to deal with sin, but to save us completely, utterly, to the uttermost. Not all the blood of beasts on Jewish altars slain could give the guilty conscience peace or wash away the stain. But Christ the heavenly Lamb takes all our sins away, a sacrifice of nobler name and richer blood than they. My faith would lay her hand on that dear head of Thine, while like a penitent I stand and there confess my sin my soul looks back to see the burdens thou didst bear when hanging on the cursed tree and knows her guilt was there. Believing, that's you and me, believing we rejoice to see the curse removed. We bless the Lamb with cheerful voice and sing His bleeding love. Aren't you glad He could finish the hymn? If He'd stopped after the first verse. It would have been terrible, but he wrote all the rest because the writer of Hebrews has given us that this sacrifice is once and for all. So Christ on the tree bore our curse and at the same time mediated a new covenant, which is better than the old. Oh, how glad I am. How thankful. We, we, we want to end like we did last night as with you responding. The song is before the throne of God above. I have a strong and perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love. Whoever lives to set me free. Is that right? Intercede for me. To intercede for me. To intercede for me. Y'all come and sing that. Let's sing that as a congregation. As we end this night thinking on the cross, thinking on the covenant, thinking on our great God who kept his promise, let's sing. This is the reality. This is it. We can only sing it because of Hebrews. Let's sing.